Thanks so much for being here. We are very excited to uh, celebrate together through a little music, a little message through a brand new book we're starting to uh, study today. Uh, it's Esther from the Old Testament. We spent some time in Proverbs over the summer, then a New Testament survey in our Radical Unity series, and now through the book of Esther. And if we are going to glean one thing from the book of Esther over these next four weeks, it's that our lives matter, that every moment matters. But every once in a while, there's a specific moment that really makes an impact. And so for every life here today, for every family, we're going to have a good time going through this book. Now, Esther is very, very dramatic. It is quite a tale, as we'll see here in a little bit. It has honored heroes, including, of course, Esther. And, uh, and here we have an artist's rendering of, of uh, what she went through, and we'll see in a minute how disturbing this image is. But we have her as a, as a hero. We have Mordecai, who adopted her when she was a young orphan, who was her advisor. These are great heroes of the book. Then you have despicable villains. Uh, here is Xerxes. Now, this is from the movie 300. Not that anybody here has seen that. We're not going to show it at church afterwards. Um, but uh, this is the, the emperor of Persia. He fancied himself to be the god of the world from Ethiopia to, to Russia to India to Europe. And he had this immense power. In fact, arguably the most powerful person who has ever lived. He had an evil aide named Haman, and Haman was out for himself, and he was manipulating the king for his own benefit. And then there's a story of how one moment in particular changed the course of history, one moment in particular. So what I wanted to do was to uh, share the whole story of Esther today, and then over the next three weeks to pull major themes from the book of Esther in terms of moments that matter and how we can live moments that matter. Uh, so I have a choice here. Uh, one choice is to spend the next nine minutes telling you about the book of Esther. The other choice is to show you a video from the Bible Project. And um, the Bible Project tells the story in a much more entertaining way and a clearer way than I ever can. So uh, I think I'm going to defer to a video. Now, the problem is it's, it's nine minutes long. I have a rule here at Rancho, no video can be shown more than a minute 45. So far, the response has been pretty good, and, uh, and for some people, they've said, hey, as long as I don't have to hear you for nine minutes, I will watch a video for nine minutes. So let's take a look at the book of Esther from the Bible Project. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. 
On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot 
fit for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we began, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history, and he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. 
And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. If you go to the, uh, the Bible project, you will see um, that nearly every book of the Bible has these kinds of illustrations. So it's great to kind of educate yourself on the themes of the Bible books as well as maybe teaching your kids. So it's kind of cool. But what we see in this theme is that moments matter. Moments matter. And there are several moments throughout this uh, dramatic uh, story that are very clearly pivotal moments. And we're going to pull from this story uh, many truths that will really populate how we handle the moments in our lives, particularly those that could be pivotal. And so every moment matters. That's the, that's the theme of today. Every moment matters, even if we don't think we matter. Even if we don't think we matter. Now, by all standards of judgment, Esther's life didn't matter. Esther's life was a throwaway. Now, you might wonder, well, why is that the case? Because she was a queen, and so we have all these images of a queen. A queen is highly esteemed, on a throne, you know, full of respect, ruling over the people. That is not what Esther was all about. In fact, quite the opposite. Esther 2.2 says this. His personal attendance, this is King Xerxes, personal attendance suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Vashti had rejected Xerxes' invitation to come and show herself off, essentially show her body off to a bunch of his drunken friends. She says, I'm not going to do it. She's deposed. And so what's the grand solution? We are going to take sex slaves from all over the empire, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, dispatching troops from Ethiopia to Russia, from India to Europe at the time, and, and they're going to take slaves who will be used solely for the pleasure of the king. These were, quote, beautiful young virgins. She's hardly an esteemed person. In fact, she's the lowest of the low. She started as an orphan. Now, orphans in ancient time were not known for having uh, wonderful lives or even lives that were decent. They were known for living a life of struggle. Then she was taken captive as a sex slave. Now, keep in mind, the age of marriage in ancient civilization would have been between 14 and 16. So she was likely taken as a sex slave at age 12 or 13 years old. This is a horrific tragedy a human trafficked sex slave for the pleasure of King Xerxes. Esther 2.12 says this, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. In other words, each one of these virgins were prepared for one evening with the king. And they had to satisfy him sexually. 12 months of beautification, uh, 12 months of sex training for that one night to pleasure the king. The king could only have virgins. And after he had a virgin, no one else could have them. So hundreds over time, thousands and thousands of women who were used and abused by the king were put in parts of the uh, palace to be um, secured away from civilization. They could never get married again. Once the king had her, no one else could. This is terrible. This is horrific. This is a tragedy. This is absolutely not a love story. It was a human tragedy that became a story of salvation. If you grew up in Sunday school, you might have seen you know, the flannel graph, Esther's and Mordecai's and Haman's and all that stuff. And then it's almost framed as though it's a love story. Or you see some of these really lame Christian movies about Esther and every other lame Christian movie. And it's just, it's put as a, as a romantic, almost like a romance novel. It is not, it is nothing but a human tragedy that God then uses to redeem not only her life, her life of tragedy, but to redeem and save a nation. 
Dr. Erica Dunbar says this about the story of Esther. She did her doctoral thesis on the story. She says, the failure of readers to perceive recruitment, transport, and harboring of subjects in the biblical text as characteristics of trafficking prevents them from expressing outrage um, and, and, uh, and from taking action. In other words, if we romanticize this terrible tragedy, we will not be outraged by it, and we won't act to present-day tragedies. Esther and other virgin girls are abducted from their native lands, which span from India to Ethiopia, and are transported to Persia and held captive in the king's palace so that he can engage in non-consensual sex with each of them until he determines which one satisfies him best sexually. These vulnerable girls are seized, brought against their wills, and secluded in the king's palace. They are transported from their homes, harbored in the king's harems, undergo a beautification process, and repeatedly sexually abused. This is a tragedy. And by all objective measurements at the time, her life would have been utterly insignificant. But we see in this story that every moment matters, even if we think we are insignificant. So have you ever felt insignificant? Have you ever felt as though your life really doesn't matter? Have you ever felt as though you're just maybe not noticed or, or your life can't have significance or your life can't make an impact? All of us may struggle with that at times. I certainly remember growing up in uh, Rancho, California. In this valley, it was a hick, hillbilly, dairy town. There's no other way around it, right? And uh, there's just a couple of schools here and I'm a kid kind of disappearing in a small town, a skinny kid, stuttering kid, very insecure. I didn't feel as though I had very many talents. I wasn't the best sports guy. I was not an athlete. I hung around with a bunch of nerds, and they were all smarter than me. So I just really felt as though I was nothing in a nothing of a city. I mean, I really did. And, and it wasn't until later in life when people started coming alongside of me and saying, no, you know, you have relationships, you have friends, you have a family, you can kind of make a difference in the people around you. So it took a lot of mentors to sort of unlock a vision that I didn't just have to put in time at a job and maybe have a family, kill time, and die. That, <laughs> life could be a little more significant than that. But as a young man, I really felt as though I wouldn't be able to do much with my life. I understand what it means to feel insignificant at times. You may understand what it means to feel insignificant at times. Esther, for sure, lived a life that was deemed insignificant. In fact, the lowest of the low. So every moment matters, even if we don't think we matter. And every moment matters, even if we don't think we're particularly spiritual. Uh, this, um, this video mentioned that the name of God is not mentioned in, in this book of the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible where God's name isn't mentioned. And so it is considered to be an unspiritual book. God isn't mentioned. God doesn't speak. God doesn't guide. You don't see God sort of working behind the scenes as in some books you, you sort of see a vision of God working behind the scenes. There's none of that. God is nowhere in this book except for a, a very brief reference to these people praying and fasting the days before their execution. So, you know, it's sort of like their foxhole moment. They're all going to die, so they're pleading to God for, for salvation. But he's almost nowhere and certainly not the center of the lives, even of the heroes. Martin Luther, the famous reformer from 500 years ago, was so disturbed by Esther, he didn't even want it in the Bible. Sometimes I get harassed for some opinions. He didn't even want the book of Esther in the Bible. He said this, I am so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all. For they have too many uh, heathen unnaturalities. The Jews much more esteem the book of Esther than any of the prophets, though they were forbidden to read it before they had attained the age of 30 by reason of the matters it contains. 
The book of Esther is a disturbing book full of sex and violence and slavery and drunkenness and debauchery, right? I mean, it is a gnarly book to read. Very, very disturbing that he said it shouldn't even be in the Old Testament. Now, we can rightly assume as we read the book of Esther that um, God was not the center of her life. God was not the center of her life. He's not even mentioned by her or anybody around her. Uh, God was not the center of the life of Mordecai. God didn't seem to be a priority in her act of courage. She wanted to uh, really take the counsel of Mordecai, save her life, save Mordecai's, and save her people. Kate Benjamin from the Luther Forum speaks in more detail about the struggle between the book of Esther and people like Luther who have a problem with its content. Luther may have been uniquely vocal and vitriolic on the matter, but he is far from alone among Esther's critics, particularly her Christian ones. A robust treatment of Esther's defects would surely include the book's famed failure to mention the name of God or to recognize divine providence. Esther gets a lot of harassment from Bible commentators, um, particularly male Bible commentators. They harass her for not being obedient. They harass her for not standing on sexual morals by saying, no, I'm not going to you know, go into the chamber of the king. Uh, they harass her for participating in these drunken banquets. Uh, they harass her for eating unclean foods that the Old Testament specifically would command her not to eat. Um, they harass her because she married a Gentile as specifically forbidden in the Old Testament. So she gets a lot of harassment for basically being immoral, which I think is twisted. I think some commentators just need to stop commenting. She's a 12 or 13 year old slave taken captive. Her whole upbringing was in Babylon, not in kind of the pristine, you know, God-centered city of Jerusalem with this wonderful temple that she could honor God in. She's in exile in, in Babylon where they worship hundreds of gods and worshiped Xerxes as a god. Then she's taken away by force as a sex slave and put in a, in a harem in a palace where there is absolutely no thought of God, no thought of the, of the Torah, no thought of the Jewish traditions. And yet she gets harassed because God's not the center of her life. I mean, come on, give me a break. So at least she could be accused of being unspiritual because she didn't have the background or the support to be spiritual. So not only was her life by all judgment insignificant, her life by all judgment was unspiritual. Every moment matters, however, if we don't think we're particularly spiritual. We see that in the book of Esther. Have you ever felt unspiritual? Have you ever felt as though you should be praying more, you should read the Bible more, you should go to church more, you should volunteer more, you should give more, you should make better choices, you should be a better person? If you grew up as a youngster in church, no doubt that burden was placed upon you from the very beginning. That God wants you to do more. You're not doing enough, God wants you to do more. That's the burden of being a part of a religious community, right? And it's that kind of burden that causes people to insanely judge Esther for not being spiritual. But we can all feel unspiritual at times. We can all feel as though, you know, I'm not doing enough. I do a bunch of things I know I shouldn't do. I don't do things I know I should do. We can all feel that burden, right? I certainly remember feeling that burden. I was raised in a youth group culture of the, of the 1980s, and that was all about the burden. It was all about, you know, kind of telling people where they're going wrong and telling people what they should do. And I was raised in that culture by people who really did love me and thought it was the best for me to do more, do more, do more for God. And so I tried. I mean, I really tried. I, I got really into the Bible, which is why I'm here today. A lot of pressure of that church environment, and I love it. I love God's Word. I love teaching God's Word. There's nothing else I'd want to do in life. But for me, prayer was always a struggle. 
My brain is just completely scattered all over the place. So the idea of a quiet moment of prayer and solitude for anything more than about 90 seconds gives me panic attacks. I mean, I'm always moving and fidgeting. You see me in the, even the videos in the staff meeting with announcements, and I'm back there rocking and fidgeting, and my legs going like this. When I was a, a kid, I wore out three cribs just doing this. I, I mean, truly, back to my parents. They're back there. So I'm always this, this fidgeter, and my head's kind of the same way. It's a really scary place. So I never thought that, that, that I was good enough for God or spiritual enough because I wasn't a man of prayer the way I had read about prayer or the way people taught me to pray. Now, thank God I had a, a real grace awakening in, the, in my 20s, and, and so I was able to be free from that kind of spiritual pressure, and, and thankfully, I was free from that early enough that I didn't lay that on my kids, right? Because that feeling of not being spiritual enough for God is a heavy, heavy burden. And so we see in the pages of the book of Esther that here she is among the most insignificant sort of throwaway lives, just a captive slave for the pleasure of Xerxes. And here she is, this unspiritual person because she didn't have the upbringing in the background, and yet God used her in incredible ways. God used her in incredible ways. Right where she was, she had some, some moments where she had to make some decisions, but her life as unspiritual as you can accuse it of being or as insignificant as historically you can frame it, God used her right where she was in the big moments and the small moments. If you've ever struggled with insecurities, if you've ever struggled with being unspiritual, I want you to look at the, at, at the life of Esther and thank God that in his eyes, you're just fine with him. In God's eyes, you're significant. In God's eyes, you have nothing to prove to him. In fact, I love Psalm 139, 16 through 18. This is thanking God for how he sees us. Get this, this is how he sees you. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. Do we have anything to prove to God? He valued us before we were even born. We didn't prove anything to God before we were born, were we? We didn't. Yet we're precious to him before we were born. This afternoon at 3.30, right here, we're having a, a birth choice conference where we're gonna talk about the unborn and the sanctity of life and coming alongside mothers and coming along single mothers and coming alongside women who have impossible choices to make. It's gonna be a time of compassion right here at 3.30 based on, on this passage, really, that God values us even before we were born. We're significant in his eyes even before we were born. We're precious to him. And then even while we're asleep, while we're totally inactive and completely unproductive and completely unspiritual, sleeping, we have nothing to prove to God. His thoughts are always for us, always for us, and they outnumber the grains of sand on the earth. See, Esther's life was considered a throwaway, and God was not explicitly the center of her life, yet God loved her and through her made a difference in the world around her. And as we read the story, the great celebration is that the nation of Israel is saved, but that's just one part of the story. They weren't massacred because of, of Esther's choice. But the story goes on. Not only was Israel saved as a people, but through Israel, 400 years after the story, Jesus Christ was born through that nation. And because Jesus Christ was born through that nation, he is the savior of the world today. He's the one who's brought humanity into a right relationship with God by grace. He gave his life to forgive the sins of the world. He rose again from the dead to give us all new and eternal life by grace. 
And if you trace that story back, you can trace it back to Esther. A life, by all measure, was insignificant and unspiritual. But God used every moment of her life and moved in real significant moments to move his plan forward. Now, neither you nor I will likely save a nation in our lifetime. But our moments matter, as Esther's did. And we will be faced with significant choices in significant times. And what will we do in those choices? We'll discover all that together as we uh, study the book of Esther. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this story is uh, a great celebration of what you can do through ordinary people's lives, even through a life that would have been considered a throwaway, that you work through people who may not even be considered particularly spiritual or God-centered. You are the sovereign God, and you work through us all. So I pray that we would not have this deep quest for significance or spirituality in order to be noticed or in order to be blessed by you. We don't come here to be noticed. We don't come here to be blessed. We come here to simply live a life that, that you consider to be significant, that you treasure every moment of our lives, and so should we. I pray that we would understand that our lives are truly significant in your eyes and that you have a plan through everyday conversations, through every relationship we have, to make people's lives around us better and to advance the cause of Christ together. I pray that we would know that we have nothing to prove to you by any religious devotion, but simply as we are where we are, your thoughts are for us and never against us, and you treasure us. And so, God, when we look to your word and when we pray, it's not to earn anything from you, but to be thankful for what you've already given us in Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We're brought near to you. You love us, and that will never be taken away from us no matter what. So help us to be at peace with who we are. Help us to be at peace with you. And help us to understand that every moment we have in this life is a precious gift that you give us. And every moment matters, and every relationship matters, and every word we say matters, and every action we take matters. And I pray that as we understand that, we would know that you're moving history forward through us. Maybe not to save a nation, but to have deep and profound impact in the world around us. In Christ's name we pray, and everybody said... Amen.